Welcome to the Evoking History Podcast. We are called as a people to give testimony in the sight of the world to our faith that the future shall belong to the free. Since this century's beginning, a time of tempest has seemed to come upon the continents of the earth. Masses of Asia have awakened to strike off shackles of the past. Great nations of Europe have fought their bloodiest wars. Thrones have toppled, and their vast, vast empires have disappeared. New nations have been born. For our own country, it has been a time of recurring trial. We have grown in power and in responsibility. And thank you for listening to the Evoking History Podcast. On this episode, I'm going to be joined by someone who's across town from me, a PhD candidate over at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Will Chekaritis. How are you doing today, Will? Doing great. How are you, Ben? I'm doing well, thank you. I met Will through my work with Dr. Robert Smith in the Center for Urban Research, Teaching, and Outreach. Um, I believe that Dr. Smith, who had previously been at UWM before he came over to Milwaukee, um, had you and his some of his classes, or he was on your dissertation committee at one point? Yeah, he was my advisor. Oh, awesome. Well, I'm sorry that you lost him, but I'm happy that he's over here with us. <laughs> no doubt. No problem. We're lucky to have him. Yes, yes, we are. It's interesting, and part of the reason that I wanted to have Will on here, besides the fact that, you know, that commonality, is that he is doing research that is fairly similar to mine. He's getting ready to defend his dissertation while I have just started mine. And it is going to be on policing exceptionalism, race, law enforcement, and the Black-led struggle for accountability in Milwaukee. And he's actually going to be defending it fairly soon. So he was kind enough to take some time while I was preparing for that to come on and talk to us. Thank you. You're very welcome. So let, let's start off. Um, for those of who don't know you, and I admit that I don't know you all that well, uh, give us a little bit about your background. Yeah, I uh, grew up in New England, spent my first 18 years there, fairly unassuming life, um, pretty privileged life, uh, small town, suburban America, hadn't really stepped foot in any city larger than Hartford, Connecticut, the capital uh, there in Connecticut. Um, and uh, always had a passion for history and uh, sort of the political history of the country my father was passionate about and got me interested in. And I knew it was always something I'd be interested in. So when I eventually went off to college in Boston, uh, Suffolk University, I knew that I knew that history would be a good, good pursuit, good line of passion to, to follow. But that was the first time I made it to a city. And that was that was way back in 2001. So started the start of the new millennium. Yeah. Now, did you just do your bachelor's there or did you do your master's there as well? I did my bachelor's there. Um, kind of started getting into public history a little bit, volunteered at some museums, the local African-American History Museum in Boston. And that kind of planted the seed that I might be interested in doing public history going forward, especially in a, in a museum setting. Um, I moved to Chicago on a whim after being in Boston and graduating in 06 and began thinking about graduate school and what kind of program, really public history program I wanted to be a part of. And I ended up uh, applying to a few and got into American University out in Washington, DC, which proved to be a really great 
sort of, well, testing ground for public history. Obviously, you got the Smithsonian and all those great museums and public history sites in the area. And that's where I, that's where I kind of took this to a graduate level and started getting more involved in doing some more serious academic work in history. Now, did you work in the public history field while you were in Chicago, or was it just an interest? No, it just remained an interest. I was kind of, actually, I worked in hotels. Hotels was kind of my, um, the way that I earned a living throughout this, <laughs> throughout this entire run in, in graduate career, doing, uh, doing bellman and doorman type activity. Well, I salute you because the hospitality industry, especially the uh, hotel industry, is, um, I'm sure you saw a lot of really interesting things and have all kinds of stories about that. Totally, totally. Yeah, these days in particular, it's really rough for hospitality oh, yeah. workers. Um, obviously, given the pandemic and how that's that's affected employment, and there's no there's no more important time for them to be sort of unionizing and organizing as best they can. Without a doubt. So, do you have any? I think public history is very interesting. Um, I I have several colleagues because we have since I got here, Marquette University has developed a public history minor for the master's program. Okay. And um, so several of the, my colleagues who came in when I came in for my master's here and since then have worked with local institutions or have gone on into the public history field. What kind of stuff did you do when you were pursuing your degree in public history? I mean, because that's when I think of actually all three cities you named, that's why I asked, Boston, Chicago, and of course DC, they all have such phenomenal museums to work at and totally. I can really see why you would be drawn into the, the public history sphere. Totally. So there's really two tracks that I would say interested in me. Um, on the one hand, uh, I told you I worked at the African American History Museum in Boston. I really started getting into, into black history and African American history um, in general. And when I was in DC, I had a great opportunity to work um, at two Smithsonian museums, one being the National Museum of American History, but the other was the Anacostia Community Museum, which is a, it's an African-American history museum, essentially, that focuses on the Anacostia community. And it's really a community-facing museum that also does sort of large-scale African, African-American, African diasporic history. It also focuses on that specific community in Southeast DC. It's a rich history, um, if anyone uh, knows about Chocolate, Chocolate City and its, its past, but, um, and, and it really was kind of the African-American History Museum of the Smithsonian before the National sure. African-American History Museum Life and Culture opened up. So had a great opportunity there and met some, some really great people and worked on a cool projects. And the other track I'm thinking of is digital history. Mm -hmm. So I was really interested in how the world of digital humanities married the world of museums and public history. So I started getting into building websites basically and doing development. And that project for the Anacostia Community Museum was developing an online resource for them to, you know, allow student interns to blog. And I don't even know if people still blog these days. I hope so. Yeah, um, some people do. <laughs> students would blog and they would present their sort of community facing work um, in the Anacostia community in a digital setting. So my partner Jordan Grant and I from American University helped them sort of develop that resource and enter the digital age in a more um, in a more meaningful way that allowed the residents in the community to contribute stories and to contribute artifacts and items about the past and engage in a more 
I guess, in a more direct way with the curators on site there. So, and another project, if I could just say briefly was, sure. and it's really timely now, I worked at the uh, Robert E. Lee House, um, which is on the grounds of the Arlington National Cemetery. It's a national park, as I believe at the time, and maybe still it was the most visited, like foot in terms of foot traffic, national park in the country. You said that as you were doing that, you decided to turn towards more towards academic history and academic and public history are two different disciplines, and although you are well vetted in both. What made you decide to pursue decide to pursue the academic side as, as opposed to continuing to continue on with the public history? Yeah, a big part of it was being in classrooms and in classroom settings with other academic historians who weren't necessarily doing public history work. I loved both sides of it. I really enjoyed the um, more sort of rigorous side of, it's not more rigorous, I just mean the traditional path of, of researching the topic and, and, and writing about it and trying to, um, I guess, fit my perspective within a larger corpus of material within the historiography. Um, it's something that just always, always interested me as well. And it's kind of a series of events that got me to focus more specifically on, you know, doing a PhD and especially focusing on Milwaukee, which I can talk about it if you want. Yeah, please. Yeah, I would like that. Quick. Yeah. So, so I ended up, I didn't necessarily have my path in place to pursue the PhD. I moved to Milwaukee in first in the summer of 2010 and then officially in 2011, um, my, my former partner and my ex-wife is from the area. So I moved to Milwaukee and at the time that I moved to Milwaukee, I was just looking for public history work um, to start. And then it's, it's really the, the contingency of when I moved. It was right in the midst of Act 10. It was right during all of the sort of bedlam that was taking place um, around the rights of public employees um, in Milwaukee and at the University of Wisconsin and University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and all of the teachers unions and farmers unions across uh, the state and other unions as well who were showing up in force at the state capitol to challenge the um, reactionary policies of Scott Walker and his mm -hmm. sort of program of, of budget austerity and how he challenged the rights of public employees. Um, so, you know, I was here for like a year working in a hotel, of course, um, trying to make a living and thinking about my next, my next moves. And um, actually, we talked about him uh, briefly for a second there. Robert Smith um, was a parent at a school, Dr. Robert Smith at, at Marquette. He was at UW-Milwaukee at the time. And my stepson was going to a school and Rob's son was going to a school. And we started talking about sort of what was happening locally. And we kind of became friends and talked a bit about what our interests were in history. And when I was at, in Washington, DC still, I read a book for the first time that got me interested in carceral studies and got me interested in issues around uh, race and policing. And that was the new Jim Crow. Yeah. Um, such a formative book, I think, for a lot of folks who are now doing carceral studies and thinking about policing in prisons and surveillance. But it was a topic of conversation between Rob and I. And he was like, hey, man, you should probably just apply to UW-Milwaukee, you know, come here, work with me, and uh, let's, let's do this PhD thing. So, so that's how I actually got to, to UWM, um, was just having, it, having the seedbed in my mind that, yeah, I do want to do something around um, this pressing civil rights issue and start thinking a bit 
more about how it relates locally to Milwaukee. And then there's all these, this sort of germinating political energy um, happening on the left here in the state around that time in, in 2010 and 2011. So that got me, that got me thinking it was time to kind of pursue a PhD and think, think locally about um, how mass incarceration plays out here on the ground in, in the city. Definitely so. And I, I think that that is, unfortunately, although I do think that there's a trend, um, you, Simon Balto, and, and several other people, I guess even myself, are, are kind of correcting that. But I think that is an understudied historical act. It's not just the incarceration, but policing. And do you consider yourself a carceral historian or do you, because you had mentioned that at first this was about politics and to me the two are intrinsically linked. So I guess I'm asking you if you agree with that or not, but because of the way that policing evolved and then in turn incarceration evolved out of that, um, I, I view this as all inherently political in a way that I, I think a lot of people don't necessarily agree with. Totally. No, I do too. Um, it's impossible to separate the politics of really three pillars that the incredible um, Black feminist intellectual scholar and, and activist Maryam Kaba always frames it as, which is surveillance, policing, and prisons. Um, you cannot separate the politics surrounding those three issues from the history of the United States. And all three are inter entwined within our, our local state and federal histories. So yeah, I agree 100%. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Simon Balto there briefly, who has done some really great work on sort of, and in Milwaukee as well, his work on Chicago. I hope folks go out and, and check out. It's called, uh, his book is called Occupied Territory. But he did some early work in Milwaukee too that traced the history of racial criminalization in the 1940s and 1950s. And that, that particular, um, I think it was a master's thesis that he wrote and then an article proved to be really formative for, for my own thinking and got me thinking a bit, a bit deeper about the long-term history of policing and politics in the city. So you're absolutely right. And, um, and in my dissertation work, I absolutely, it, it really is a political history as much as it is a history of, of policing and history of African-American life in the city. Right, so yeah, it's a really sitting at the intersection of that and urban history as well, as you mentioned. Was the decision to focus on Milwaukee just because you were here and, and therefore the resources are here? Or was there something else about Milwaukee that made you think it would be a perfect case study for the questions you wanted to ask? So I think it works both ways. Um, it's hard to say what comes first. I think, yes, obviously I was here in Milwaukee and I knew that it would be a lot easier for me to access archives and resources here locally and not have to sort of apply for a ton of grant funding and, and seek out other archival venues, though I did do that. I, I went to Chicago and, and DC um, a little bit. But once you get into the history of policing in Milwaukee and its unique um, African-American history here, you start to understand how under-acknowledged and central Milwaukee has always been to this story of policing in America and a story of Black life and culture in America. It's, 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 it is its own unique history and there are some very specific reasons for that. Um, 
part of that is the dynamic that played out. Migration came, Black migration came to Milwaukee a little bit later. Right? It came in great numbers in the 1940s through 1960s. Um, there's a scholar by the last name of Gieb, I think it's Paul Gieb, who writes about the late Great Migration history in the Journal of African American History. Um, also, so Milwaukee did have a formative um, first generation migration community and it developed a strong black middle class. The fact that it developed a strong black middle class before there were great numbers of poor and working class African Americans in the city meant that a particular class politics emerged within Milwaukee's black community in a very different way from how black intracommunal politics played out in say Chicago or Detroit or New York. So when we did have that surge of poor and working class black migration from the South and lower Midwest, an interesting dynamic played out and you saw some collisions take place amongst this sort of elite black middle class who had some ties to the local politics and the city hall with this poorer working class um, black community that was sort of singled out as being in need of cultural adjustment. Right. And that really was the narrative that played out in the city in that post-war period was a narrative of cultural adjustment, that these folks are backward and they're not prepared for urban life. And that's actually not true. They were very skilled workers who had worked in a variety of industries, both agricultural and industrial in the South and, and lower Midwest. But it's interesting how um, Milwaukee's unique migration, Black migration story connected to the political story and that had ramifications for the policing story. Yeah, that's um, something that I rarely look forward to reading in your dissertation whenever it gets published is because the period that I'm looking at is more the progressive era. And there we, we kind of see a lot of this push to professionalize quote unquote policing and that continues on and on for decades later. But the, the police were, there was a big divide within Milwaukee anyway of policing as a reinforcement of business. So it was to control social activists and workers and things of that nature, as opposed to in the South where it does have the legacy of coming out of slave patrols and everything. So it is much more racialized there. So it's, it will be interesting to see how that changes. Not that there weren't elements of race in the policing of workers because of the ethnic makeup of Milwaukee workers, but just seeing that, I guess, how those two things interact and evolve. Totally. Yeah, so that's actually, I didn't know you were working on that. So yeah, that's um, that's my first chapter is actually kind of some of that that you're talking about there. So when I, my dissertation is called Policing Exceptionalism. Um, and the main, if I could say the main argument of the, of the work is that in that progressive era period, there is an idea about policing and police professionalism that emerged in Milwaukee. And the, this um, common thread of an exceptional police force emerged under a few very specific police chiefs um, in John Jensen, um, Chief Lobenheimer, and Chief Kluchewski, and then going into Chief Polsin. Um, so between the late 19th century and the mid 1940s, this exceptional narrative emerges. And it's, it's a narrative that is supported by the federal state and supported by the federal government. And it's supported by the 
Justice Department and an organization and study study committees like the Wickersham um, Commission who goes in in the 1930s and extols the virtues of this professional police force. And people don't know about this um, throughout the country. They really don't talk about the formative role that Milwaukee played as a professionalizing force establishing a particular idea about police legitimacy. And you're right, it is all interwoven within the working class politics of the city, the increasingly radical class politics of the city, um, and a very like nuanced hierarchical class politics. Um, that, that we, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I'll, you finish your thought. I was just going to say that people know about Milwaukee's socialist history and they think about it, I think, in a really monolithic fashion. The socialists were kind of the conservative radicals of Milwaukee's political history, right? We, had a, we also had a rich um, communist history in Milwaukee and um, there's a, there were other workers' parties, there were people's parties and, and other um, workers' parties who were vying for political control and the reason that Milwaukee Police Department professionalized in the first place was to basically, um, and it was, and it was at the behest of corporate interests and at the behest of middle class progressives, was to clamp down on um, these workers' parties. And you might broadly conceive of them as all socialists, but it's not like the sewer socialists that folks know about, who you know put up three governor, three or three mayors in the city, and had briefly had control in 1910, 1911 part of 1912, um, they were not the extent of Milwaukee's radical politics and they were not the extent of the um, workers that John Jansen's police force um, was looking to quash. Well, and you, you really do see that divide and I don't want to, this is more into what I'm doing as opposed to what you're doing, but you really do see that divide because you have a socialist mayor but then you have the police force who is funded by these businesses saying, to hell with him, you know, just out and out saying we're not going to follow the mayor's orders. We're going to do what we've always done to maintain order or follow the business yeah. men's orders. And just the really the fight between the mayor's office and the police chiefs as to they control the size of the police force and everything else. So that use of force, all these things, which in some ways mirrors the, the stuff that you're talking about in your dissertation, but has that added racial component to it. Exactly. So if I could share one story, um, I'm, I'm obsessed with the 1930s in Milwaukee <laughs> right now. Um, I feel like we don't think about the 30s enough. Um, and it's a really sort of important decade for all of the reasons no, the 30s are important for the Great Depression and what that meant for um, the radical organizing that took place in that period and the sort of the building up of the popular front and and um, workers trying to trying to trying to figure out how to survive and to to make sense of a really dismal economic landscape, um, but they're also you know more I feel like more sort of united in their shared working class banner than ever. Well, maybe not than ever before, but it is a really fruitful period, especially in Milwaukee for for, for strike activity and for challenging um, the corporate elites that run the city, basically. Um, and race is also becoming more of a pronounced issue in the city 
um, you had a surge of black migration in the World War I period and steady growth in sort of low level manufacturing hiring and some service industry hiring in the 20s. And in the 30s, as the police force under a new chief in, in Laubenheimer um, is professionalizing and beginning to militarize in a lot of new ways, um, he brings in machine guns, he brings in uh, new training um, methods, jujitsu and wrestling, new ways for hand-to-hand -hand combat. Um, you, you have this police force that's, that's kind of uh, becoming more of what we think about when we think about modern police forces, militarized police forces, um, disciplined, um, um, sort of, and by the way, our training academy was the first of its kind, the first of its kind standalone training academy founded in 1922, a police academy of this, of this, um, of this manner. Um, when that police force collides with these forces of, of labor and of, and of workers' parties and of various um, socialists, big picture, big tent socialist parties, um, you have a lot of violence. You have a lot of police violence. You have not just the police department, but the sheriff's office and the National Guard. And you start to see a transition towards racialized policing. It's not specific. It's not just anymore about quashing these um, radical working class white European agitators. It becomes um, it becomes more. You start to see the germs of something coming that's going to be more race based and race focused, and you see that in the 1934 Weir steel strike. W H E R, the Weir Company. Um, there's a major steel strike that uh, historian Joe Trotter writes about really well. And you see that the police and the striking white workers team up against the black scab workers and um, begin to impose sort of this racialized police power with the backing of the white working class. And to me, that's a really important transition point. A couple years later after that, in 1936, you have an organization that becomes the first organization to challenge racialized police brutality, and that's the Sixth Ward Law and Order League. Sixth Ward Law and Order League challenges indiscriminate police stops of middle-class black folk in Bronzeville who are being um, stopped because of middle-class white folk being irritated about gambling, being irritated about uh, the policy racket. So in the 1930s, you got this really key transition to racialized police violence backed up by blue-collar white support against black workers, and you also have um, middle-class black folk being aggrieved by the police who are clamping down at the behest of wealthy white people who are progressives irritated about moral decay and gambling. So I mean, like the 30s is seminal. We gotta, we gotta think more a little bit more about the 30s if we really wanna understand some of these long-term issues around race and policing that we see in subsequent decades. Without a doubt, I completely agree with that. Um, I don't think my dissertation is gonna quite go that far. I'm planning on ending around 1920s, so right after the Palmer um, raids, but right. yeah. Uh, I, Maybe I should change that <laughs> after hearing you talk about the 1930s. But it, anyway, so what is the, the the temporal frame of your dissertation? Yeah, it's it's a it's a broad one. So I begin 
I began in 1885 with the, um, the state legislation that authorizes police power in Milwaukee and establishes the Milwaukee Fire and Police Commission. Um, so that bill's passed in 1885 and I go all the way for a century to 1984 with the retirement of Milwaukee's last chief for life in, in Harold Breyer um, and the revision of that state law that authorized police power. And what this law does in 1984 is it takes the rule, the rule making authority, the policy making authority out of the police department's hands and puts it in the hands of the fire and police commission. So it, so it empowered the fire and police commission with more authority over the sort of day-to-day -day operations of the police department. So I, I do view that moment as being something of a victory for mm -hmm. um, this black pledge struggle for police accountability that I write about. Um, but clearly not <laughs> something that is going to change the fundamental nature of policing and that's the point of all of this you know policing is fundamentally as we, we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation wrapped up in racial capitalism wrapped up in the politics of this country and simply shifting authority from a one institution that for for good reason people wanted to get power out of the police department because it was completely unchecked there was no, um, the law protected, state law protected local organizations, the Fire and Police Commission, the mayor's office and others, even though the mayor and Fire and Police Commission weren't really trying to hold the police department accountable. Um, but for people on the ground who were being abused by police power, they had little recourse. So for them, it was a real victory to kind of put control into a figurative or sometimes literal police review board in the Fire and Police Commission. And since 1984, there have been all kinds of issues around police accountability still, black people still being killed by police, black people still being stopped and frisked, um, and not just black folk, but brown folk, Latinx folk, um, right. and, a, and a lot of um, leftist white political ag agitators as the police like to call them as well. Uh, anyone challenging basically this uh, dominant capitalist order. Um, so accountability remains an issue, but I do think that it's important to kind of recognize um, sort of the victories and the struggles that that come before the present moment. Um, you know, today we're talking about defunding the police and and thinking from a more through a more abolitionist lens. But it took time to get there, and it took it took real it took lives, it took experience, it took organizing, it took learning the lessons of how how power and how capitalism in this country work to to get to this point. So I think it's it's really important to recognize those moments and sort of tease them out and fit them in context. Yeah, without a doubt. Let, let's turn back to to the, the position of the police chief, because I think you brought up something there that I think would be shocking to some listeners, is the fact that for a long time, Milwaukee's police chief was appointed for life. Yeah, yeah. In that same, in that same legislation I was talking about in 1884, 85, that authorizes the Police Commission, um, it also basically set the parameters for um, what it would take to remove a police chief. Now, it became even harder to remove the police chief in 1911 when they revised this state legislation. But in 1885, they basically set up that, you know, the only way you can remove a police chief if you're the Fire and Police Commission, because the Fire and Police Commission was put in charge of police hiring, appointments, promotions, and firings, discipline, um, was for was quote for cause unquote 
So the only way you could remove a police chief was for cause. So really vague legal terminology um, that was clarified a little bit in 1911, I think, maybe not, maybe not even all that much, but basically it created, um, it created a statute that the police chief himself, but also the city attorney, the mayor, or anyone else who challenged the idea of police authority could point to and they could say, no, that's, that's just not what the statute says. Um, the, and, and, and you're right, it was for life, so there were no term limits on the police chief's tenure. So that's another really important factor here. So you can only fire them for a cause, which is vague and whatever that means, it's arbitrary. And they're appointed for life. And oh, by the way, the people in power have no interest in actually removing those police chiefs. Exactly. So what it meant for the most over-policed and underprotected communities of color in the city um, is that garnering accountability from the top down was gonna be a really uphill climb. Exactly, which I mean, points to another part of your dissertation that a lot of the communities themselves then bound it together and would engage in activism to try and change this. Um, you wanna to speak to some of these organizations or these groups that did that or even the individuals. Yeah, totally. So I mentioned that group in the 30s, the Sixth Ward Law and Order League, um, and NAACP, and then NAACP, former NAACP president and leader James Dorsey was a was a major player and a, an important early uh, Black Milwaukee leader. Um, but he was very much of the middle class, an attorney um, who, who uh, let's just say, fed into in certain ways that that same sort of cultural maladjustment attitude towards poor and working class Black folk in the city who were coming in greater number. Um, moving forward into the 1950s, one of my favorite people in the city's history is a man named Calvin Sherrard. Calvin Sherrard, who uh, is written about pretty extensively in Patrick Jones's history of um, Milwaukee civil rights activism, but he sort of spearheads the first protest march after a lethal police shooting in the city after uh, a black migrant, Daniel Bell is shot and killed in 1958. Um, he teams up with a, a, a clergyman, Reverend Lathan, and they sort of begin what Patrick Jones calls in his history, the civil rights insurgency, the post-war civil rights insurgency of the city. So basically lasting from 1958 onwards through um, the early 1970s. And this is where Father Grappi comes into the picture, which I think a lot of your listeners and other folks who know Milwaukee's civil rights history would be familiar with, um, but also the NAACP Youth Council gets involved in the 60s. Some lesser known organizations that are challenging um, for police accountability. Um, I write about are the Citizens Anti-Police Brutality Committee in the 1964 and 1965 period and Lloyd Barbie. Um, another prominent individual in Milwaukee civil rights history is a member of this organization. Lloyd Barbie is famous for his efforts to desegregate the public schools here and, and filing the lawsuit. He became a really important uh, state representative um, who actually was the first person to call for abolishing the police in Milwaukee. Um, and then the 1970s is this really, really rich period that I document in a chapter of my dissertation. Um, and just like the 1930s, I'd say 1970s is like, also my favorite 
under-acknowledged moment in Milwaukee history that we don't talk about enough. Um, you've had a lot of flowerings of Black power and Black nationalism taking place throughout the city. We have short-lived Black Panther organizations, but you know, police violence and, and mass arrests and uh, state violence really kind of does away with our, our Panthers before they have a chance to really get started, even though they do you know, instill uh, free breakfast programs and, and, you know, prison visitation programs and, you know, begin to challenge police brutality in a meaningful way. But some of the offshoot organizations um, begin to address police violence, which is becoming more pronounced. There's a period of time from like 1972 to 1975. We have just a series of police killings of Black young people and Black adults um, some of whom were affiliated with the Panthers, thinking of um, Johnny Starks, whose apartment was like, the police were apparently trying to, to chase down a, a, a robbery suspect and, you know, got engaged in, he was, and Johnny Starks ended up defending his, his property and, you know, there is a, uh, something of a shootout and tear gas is used and a woman in the apartment with Starks dies of smoke inhalation. Anyway, yeah. there's a lot of stuff happening in the 70s and some organizations are getting involved and they're bringing a community control lens to the conversation. They're thinking about how can we, we we've learned that just calling for police reform doesn't really work. How can we actually instill power within our own community and, and control law enforcement in our community on our own terms? So you start to see the flowering of that community control movement in the city. Taking it up towards the end of the dissertation, you know, I close with uh, the Coalition for Justice for Ernest Lacey. Um, Ernest Lacey, a young 22-year-old black man who's basically strangled to death in the same manner as George Floyd uh, with a knee on his back in 1981. Um, until this present day movement for just for racial justice and police accountability in the city, the movement for justice for Ernest Lacey was the largest single campaign for police accountability and racial justice in the city. Mass demonstrations, um, some numbering above thousands um, in the summer of 1981 and moving into 1982. Um, just a major coalitional effort that brought in community associations and civil rights organizations and attorneys and civil liberties unions and all sorts of more than 75 organizations participate in this movement for justice for Ernest Lacey. Um, and they receive a bit of justice. You know, the, you know, the family eventually received a pretty, for the time, substantial uh, settlement payout. There is a law passed um, in 1983 that is colloquially, colloquially referred to as the Lacey Law, which requires police officers to administer first aid. So you get a, you get a few of these sort of procedural justice reforms with with that movement. Um, but again. You know, we don't see a real challenging directly of the um, sort of class economic dimensions of police power that we're seeing in a bigger way today. So what happened was people learned, you know, from, uh, there were people in the Lacey coalition who really did want to sort of take it to a more Marxist, had a more Marxist analysis and wanted to sort of challenge the economic foundations of police violence. But there was an overarching concern to remain focused on um, the direct needs of the family, achieving justice in the form of firing the officers and the main officer who 
rested on the back of Vernon Lacey's neck was fired by the Fire and Police Commission for the first time in the city's history. So that's a major victory. But yeah, but still, um, we did not, you know, it's a big victory. We didn't go far enough to the point where police stopped killing black people indiscriminately in the city. So, well, you're you're mentioned in the '70s, really, and especially the um, oppression and targeting of the Black Panthers really just reminded me of, of larger trends in the Midwest, of course, uh, the the slaying of Fred Hampton in Chicago and everything else, yeah. and just the the in overt violence levied against black power activists and other activists during that time period. Right. And I actually think that it's very interesting to hear about these victories in, in the early 80s, especially since that's the Reagan era and part of Reagan's thing was being tough on crime and everything. But also that that police chief, he steps down in 86, so pretty close, pretty soon after that. Now granted, he'd been on the job for 20 years, so there's no telling you how old he was, but you did, in your uh, analysis, does this have anything to do with it, or is this just a, he's getting close to time for him to sit down anyway, and so he just kind of moves out? Yeah, he was in his 70s. Yeah, it yeah. was, it was uh, 1984. Um, yeah. He he was nearing the, nearing the point of retirement, though he consistently mentioned in the press that he had no intention of stepping down and felt great and was going to yeah. continue, was going to continue on. Now there's a few things happening also around that that Lacey case. Um, one of the most important ones is that the family of Daniel Bell finally, and that was the that was the young man I mentioned a little while back who was killed in 1958. Um, his family achieves a measure of justice when the partner of the police officer who shot and killed him steps forward and says that there was a cover up of his death. You know the family had been saying that their son, uh, their brother, was not wielding the knife that the officers and the police department said he was wielding because it was in the wrong hand. He was left-handed and it was, they put it in his right hand. They literally framed him up with a weapon. Um, my family knew this. They had been saying this for years. They went into financial ruin. Um, the father, the patriarch of the family, was never quite the same after his son died. And you know, they had a long, lengthy court battle and legal battle. But then this news breaks in the late 1970s, around 1978, and it sort of shifts a lot of the conversation around policing locally in the city. I talked about that exceptionalism narrative and that idea of police legitimacy, um, and it's really the through line of the entire project is this idea that no matter how, no matter how much policing uh, proved to be violent and discriminatory against poor and working class people of color, this other narrative was playing out that no, no, this department has a long lengthy history of professionalism and being sort of value neutral and being above board and being tolerant and, you know, um, very by the book and coordinated and efficient at their crime control. Um, the truth is uh, that the, the, the police department um, was was trying to have it both ways and that this Daniel Bell revelation in 1978 sort of gave lie to that myth about the police department being exceptional and having this narrative of legitimacy and that shifted the politics and at the same time you have these organizations um, working for community control of the police are also working towards ousting 
police chief Harold Breyer, who you were just talking about. So it, it, there's a lot of public pressure at the grassroots and also among community associations clamoring for Harold Breyer's resignation for dismissal by the Fire and Police Commission. And all of that plays out in the lead up to the police killing of Ernest Lacey. You also have women um, in the community decrying the police force for not attending to sexual assault appropriately. There's an organization called Women Against Rape. So there's all of these different um, sort of things happening in the news around policing that are challenging the supremacy of the police department and its role in the community. And I argue in this in my chapter that like, despite all of that, I mean, it becomes it still remains narrowly narrowly focused um, on removing Chief Breyer, rather than hey maybe like this policing thing itself is not working out for these communities and maybe all of this defunding of education and all of the the lack of job creation and investment in the community um, is also a big part of the problem, right? It's not just that we have this discriminatory police force and we need more police and we need to police better. It's also that we're actively defunding all of these um, important social services and, and, and um, you know, economic projects. Um, so it's a big context for how Breyer gets out of the force. Sure. Well, and, and it's a, a, a very good point because you very rarely, we have seen some movements and some things past here now in this moment about defunding the police. We'll see if they actually come to fruition or not. But it is striking that the police, as an internal paramilitary, because that's effectively what they have turned into, just like the actual military, are able to expand their budgets and to call for a adjustment of either the police or the military's budget is seen as unpatriotic and a danger to the country. Yes. Yeah. The whole while we're oh sorry, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead, no. No, I'm just going to say the whole while we're, we're just growing the police budget exponentially in the city under under Breyer and previous police chiefs. And it's in that, it's it's expanded in that framework of, of legitimacy, right? This idea that that there's, that this police department in particular is exceptional at how it conducts the work of policing and crime control and order maintenance. Well, you know, through the 60s and 70s, you can kind of make an argument. I don't think a good one, but you can look at the crime rates and say, hey, the crime rates keep rising, keep rising, keep rising. From the 80s down, they just keep falling, but yet budgets keep going up. So they're, they're, it's not tied to results in any uh, logical way. It's just right. a, a complete um, confidence game. Yeah, and crime reporting is so deeply oh, flawed yeah. it is. about how Completely. police report it and determine it. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. You also do public history. So let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, not just public history in the fact that you have done um, work in museums and stuff in the past, but also as like a public intellectual. Yeah, some, I've been, I've been fortunate to work on a few really cool projects in Milwaukee during my time here. Um, I think one worth talking about is the March on Milwaukee 50th um, anniversary project. Um, and that was an entire, you know, community-driven grassroots project that, um, you know, our collective advisor, Robert Smith, had a, had a big role in sort of helping to get off the ground. And Adam Carr, you know, a local uh, uh, deputy news editor and media personality here, uh, to try to pay homage to the, the NAACP Youth Council and sort of bring their story a bit more upfront, uh, sort of give Father Grappi, uh, which 
give Father Grappi his the wish he always had, which is to kind of um, lift up the, the youth council's work and and allow their story to be sort of the predominant narrative about Milwaukee's open housing movement. So we had that 50th anniversary, um, and I had an opportunity to lead the oral history committee on that project. What was that um, like so, working with the oral histories? Yeah, it was great. We worked in a team of archivists across um, libraries and institutions and archives around the city, Marquette, UW-Milwaukee, um, Wisconsin Historical Society, Wisconsin Black Historical Society, um, and Milwaukee County Historical Society. And it was awesome. It was collaborative. We were able to host these history harvests where we asked for folks at, at different themed events from the community to come out and share their recollections and, and unheard stories from the open housing marches. And some of them were uh, youth council members and former commandos. Um, others were passersby or folks who remembered hearing about um, what was happening in the, in the late 1960s in Milwaukee and had a perspective on it. Um, for a moment, we tried to, <laughs> we tried to get some white voices particularly from folks who counter protested. You know, there was a really vigorous sort of white nationalist, but also just sort of white spectator um, counter, counter protest movement. And we didn't know if it would be worthwhile to, to see if we could um, kind of figure out how time had played out with their sense of the past and what they, what not necessarily the like overt white nationalists, but like, mm -hmm. Just, just everyday white folk who were around at that time who were thinking about what that moment of civil rights activism meant in the city and how their perspective may have changed over time, we thought would be really interesting. But we struggled to find a lot of those folks. I'd say most of the participants were, were African-American. Very cool. Yeah, I've seen some of the results of that, um, the exhibit that the historical society came up with and some of the um, actually, in my office at Curdo, I think the posters that came out of that that are used at the exhibits. So, nice. um, oh yeah, fantastic work you guys did. I should say that stuff is documented. Those oral histories, if they're not available yet, they're going to be available soon through the Wisconsin Historical Society. If folks want to listen. Definitely so. And you can actually find out more by going to the March on Milwaukee 50th anniversary page on Facebook. Uh, and then there are the, there's also a link in the archives for you to view them, which I'll probably put in the show notes for this episode where it goes live. Yeah, we should probably shout out the um, March in Milwaukee website for UW Milwaukee too. It's such a great resource for anyone doing history in Milwaukee. Without a doubt. So you are almost at the end of your journey, my friends. What do you foresee going forward? We made it. Um, yeah. I'm going to finish up uh, <laughs> that long-winded explanation of my dissertation and everything that I write about. Um, I'm trying to work on a few, I'm trying to work on a book proposal because I do, you know, I think that we need to get Milwaukee more on the map, um, particularly in this national moment of reckoning around race and policing. Um, so I'm going to start thinking about what that book proposal will look like and start thinking about how we can sort of interject Milwaukee into this into this conversation. Um, other than that, it's a it's a question of accessing this this dire academic job market. You know, right. it's a, there's a pandemic going on and it's it's sort of ruptured a lot of the um, already very delicate uh, foundations of 
of uh, academia. So yeah, a terrible job market has gotten markedly worse. <laughs> so yeah, I encourage I, you're you're uh, starting your dissertation um, writing at the at the correct time, I think, because you know maybe you'll have an opportunity to weather the storm here and and come out at the <laughs> the right moment. But well, I mean, you know, and I'm not married. I, I do love teaching, and I've gotten the chance to do that. Um, through my education thus far, and I'm a teaching fellow this year, so I'll get to pilot the classroom by myself. And I do enjoy that. But I also enjoy the community outreach work and some of the policy stuff that we get to do. So I was curious as to just, you know, it, it really seems like you could really go into one of these various groups that deal with policing issues if you wanted to. So I was yeah. kind of curious if you were considering that or, or if you were determined to stay in, in academia. Yeah, no, I'm con I'm considering all of it. So yeah, let me make that clear for anyone who's who's listening right now. Maybe, if you're, maybe if you're looking for a policy analyst or a researcher, I'm I'm your guy. Uh, I'm studying issues of race and policing over the long term here. But but yeah, no, I wish we had more time. Then I want to hear more about about what you're talking about with that policy work and also what you're what you're working on in your dissertation. Um, we'll have to do another conversation. Yeah, if we, we can't will. talk. <laughs> well, it's one of those things that. Um, I haven't hit the primary sources enough to really say exactly what I'm going to say, so I'm kind of hesitant to talk about it. But yeah. I, I will mention a little bit, as a scholar in the field, to, to get your feedback. So basically what my premise is, and my title for my dissertation, because I came up with titles first, it'll probably change, but it's- uh, Yeah, we all do. Yeah. Um, by badge, bullet, and baton, policing dissent in the progressive era. And so I, I want to look at the ways in which dissent was framed and then how police kind of evolved because during this period, and Milwaukee will play a role, but it won't just be a Milwaukee dissertation, mm -hmm. because during this time you have the Pennsylvania State Police come to be a thing, but they spring out of the putting down of anthracite coal strikes in Pennsylvania. Right. And so it, it is just this... I, I wanted to try and find a way to incorporate more of the South in that racial element, but I was pushed away from that, at least with the dissertation. Maybe when it becomes a book project, if it becomes a book project, I can tie more of that into it. But really just the ways in which politically the nation during the progressive period is still defining, and it's an ongoing thing, it keeps redefined all the time, but who is a citizen and is entitled to the protections of citizenship and what is a dissident and how much of a danger are they? And the way that blanket terms such as anarchist or socialist or, you know, even Catholic during part of this, the papal peril and all this stuff. So that is used to label people, whether it fits them or not, and then how the police are then able to leverage violence against these people. Right on. Yeah, the Catholic Church um, is such a, plays, plays a, another under underappreciated role in a lot of these movements for police accountability too. Um, especially in Milwaukee in the in the sixties and seventies too as well. That sounds really fascinating. Yeah, well I'm hoping so. Um I'm have you, go ahead. Have, oh sorry, have you read uh, uh Sidney Herring's book on policing in the in the progressive era, Gilded Age Progressive Era? Yes. Excellent. Good. I have and I've read um I I have yet to read um Badges Without Borders, although it's on its way. Um, but there was another book about policing empire. You really do see a lot of that rebounding back. That they, yeah. the policies that we used in our, our, you know, in the Philippines or Puerto Rico or wherever, just really rebounding. Totally. Yeah. Stuart Schrader's book is incredible, a real game changer in terms of how 
you know, it just reverses what we thought was true, right? So much of policing empire was what became policing race and class in America. Um, the two are entwined and, and reverberate back and forth. Oh yeah, well, I mean, you know, uh, part of that really makes sense to me um, because I had looked a lot at like the development of the Texas Rangers. So, and how much of that is an anti-Native American and anti-Mexican uh, American force that was just propagating genocide essentially against these populations to pacify Texas and to make it safe for citizens, i.e. white settlers to settle into the territory. So yeah, um, I, I'm supposed to, or I was supposed to before the COVID thing, um, go out to Pennsylvania for two weeks to look at the records there. And then I was also going to go to Colorado and look at um, the violence enacted in the Ludlow Massacre and, and, and then just see how that spawns into the development of policing. Um, looking here in Milwaukee, I'm going to look at the 1917 police bombing and the reaction oh, against nice. Italian immigrants, uh, which is going on at the same time as the IWW trials down in Chicago. Excellent. So, that is something that that is, that is an aspect of the history I haven't focused on enough, and I'm excited to read what you got to say about that. I'm so, definitely excited to read yours. Um, so yeah, um, hopefully, knock on wood, I'll actually get to hit some of these archives and and look at them. I also, one other aspect, and like you can tell that I'm at the beginning because I have so many ideas that, and some of them will be trimmed out as sources either do not appear or they just don't really fit into oh, yeah. the thing. But I also want to look at the ways that a lot of the criminology that is used as the excuse to professionalize is coming out of Italy at the same time the fascism is rising to power. That is not to say that all criminologists that this theory was based on was fascist, but it's all growing up in the same milieu. So I just, and the influence of that and just the mm -hmm. inherent um, conservative and rightist backlash, especially against the left that is, that is in policing. Right, there's gotta be some hippy line, right? Not all fascists are criminologists, but every <laughs> yeah. criminologist traffic and fascism, I don't know. <laughs> Something like that. Something like that. No, uh, yeah, criminology, all of the, all of the uh, social sciences that, you know, all of these white scholars were sort of toying with and, and forging the boundaries of steeped in their racism, steeped in their classism. Um, it's all problematic and, well, it's, and, it, and we're dealing with it today still. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is another book for the reading list. Um, the condemnation of blackness oh that yeah. is such a foundational text i gotta tell you that one that one too uh since we've talked about him a lot rob smith uh our our shared professor here introduced me to that book in 2012 and that one really really changed my life in terms of thinking about race and crime and and what i what i thought i knew about about yeah. crime and and where that idea of crime came from so such a such a central book and I urge everyone to check out the the revised edition because Dr. Muhammad's got a new a new introduction that kind of brings it up to the present day, which is cool. No, that is cool. The book that um, really, I guess, and I didn't think about it at the time, the, the book that set me on this journey, although I'm deviating from it some, is Worse Than Slavery about talking to farms. Yeah. And that that is such a, a devastating book too. Yeah. Um, and, and that was actually 
I have a dual BA in criminal justice and history. And oh, really? yeah. <laughs> so so yes, to your to your question. Now there there's a, a lot I like it there, or to your statement, not really your question. But one of the professors in my program was a historian. He just had a uh, master's in criminal justice and he got into his historian, uh, his PhD in history. And so I can't even remember what class it was, but he was like, I think it might have been the corrections class. And he's like, here, you got, you yeah. need to read this to, to really see. It's one thing to talk about the need to reform at prisons, but you have to understand how we got to this point in that book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's so much great literature on the sort of the the idea of the prison and the formation of the first prisons in in US history. Um, I'll never forget a public history field trip when I was in DC to a Eastern State Penitentiary. Oh man, yeah, I and, uh, see, going up in the, the Panopticon. Yeah. Panopticon there and um it 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 had basically become sort of a penal tourism site, um, which, you know, now that I look back on it, feels somewhat problematic, but I think if it's going to exist and be a, a site to reckon with the, the history of, of crime and punishment, you know, what better place to kind of bring some of these current, hopefully abolitionist ideas to the, to the interpretation. I agree. I, I think that there's a lot of places like that where that could be done. I just don't know that it is. Like Alcatraz. Alcatraz is, a, is another place where they could do something like that. And there is tourism there, but it's, and I don't think it's really getting complicated in any real way. And Alcatraz, you could really complicate because of AIM and their takeover of the property. But I don't know. Right. You know, I think it, and it's, this kind of brings it back full circle to how we kind of opened. But I think that there is a lot of opportunity to take some of these famous prisons that have been shut down or whatever to make them living history sites in ways that plantations are um, without the romanticism or the um, flash and substance of just this famous person was incarcerated here. Right. You know? um, no, no weddings. Right. Well, I got... Uh, I won't say that nobody has gotten married at a, in a prison, at a historic prison, because I'm sure somebody has, but I, it's, it's not quite the yeah. same thing. But it's it is. It's, yeah, it's yeah. a commercial tourism aspect of it. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, so just a way that we could marry some of this um, necessary reconfiguring of our na national memory with the public history sites. Right. Yeah, these are great opportunities, and, and you know, in this moment where we're sort of tearing down all these vestiges of a, you know, our racist Confederate past, um, and, and having tough conversations about even figures like Lincoln or yeah. or others who we often associate with, you know, freedom and and emancipation and et cetera. Um, well, let's just say it's a really sort of it's an interesting time to be a public historian and sort of think about memorialization and commemoration and how we have conversations around history in public spaces. It is. Um, I've had you on here for about an hour. Um, that is about as long as I like to infringe just so that I can ask people to come back on later and not feel like I'm using your time too much. 
Um, but in closing, um, just let our listeners know um, where they can find you online or anything that you want to put out there to for engagement. Yeah, uh, folks can definitely find me on on Twitter um, at Will Chack on Twitter, W I L L T C H A K. Um, try to tweet as much as I can and. Um, Uh, yeah, other than that, I am around. They can, uh, they can sing on a friendly neighborhood podcast like yours whenever, uh, whenever I get the chance. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, without a doubt. Uh, I do thank you for coming on, taking the time out of your busy day on a, what is a beautiful Wisconsin evening when you could be out enjoying the lake or something to, to speak with me. But the weather is great right now, isn't it? It is. It's so nice. Um, and thankfully, it's taken a little bit of a cool off from last week. It was pretty miserable last week. But I'm anyway, not. yeah, <laughs> I hear you there. But thank you. Um, and uh, please check out his Twitter. Uh, it's very informative. He is very engaged and very knowledgeable, as you can tell from listening to him for the last hour. Um, thank you again, Will. And thank you for listening to the Local History Podcast. And I appreciate it. Let's do it again sometime. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, I'll have to bounce some ideas off of you after I get some separate on my dissertation. So.